everybody welcome to the improv network podcast this is a series of conversations aimed at making stronger connections throughout the improv community i'm james quesada and i'm bob wick and we are your education team for the improv network go to the improvnetwork.org to check out all the great resources that the improv network has to offer including blogs and interviews and a improv faq page that has all of these live stream episodes archived, as well as mini lectures, also on improv topics there for your enjoyment and benefit. There's, and as we've been saying, <laughs> you can make yourself, it's the, it's the uh, website where you can make yourself the most profiles, the most, the record Unlimited. holder for most profiles. I uh, challenge you to make as many profiles as possible. Who first person to, to, to let us know how many, the maximum number of profiles you can make on the improv network. Yeah. Uh, is going to win a free something or other. Yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a great prize. <laughs> a free something of your choice. <laughs> um, but you can make yourself an individual improviser profile, one for your team, for all your teams, uh, for your theater, for your festival, uh, and all that for good coaching. stuff. So check it out. Yeah. For, yeah, as a teacher. Or you can find a coach. You might need one. I'm not judging. <laughs> <laughs> If you need a coach, and we've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, is there anything else we need to cover for housekeeping here, Bob? Mm-mm. Okay, that awesome. You've done your job, sir. Because I'm very excited to jump yeah. into our, the conversation with our guest. Um, our guest today has uh, uh, quite an impressive resume. Um, he's somebody that is, he's the co-founder of the uh, Impro Theater in L.A., He's got a slew of writing and directing credits uh, for TV and film, including uh, writer and director of improv for The Wayne Brady Show. Uh, he's taught applied improv uh, for the, the Applied Improv Network for a long time, and he's co-authored a couple books on improv. So uh, this man knows his stuff, and we are very excited to welcome Dan O'Connor. Yeah. Good morning. Good afternoon, guys. Yes. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good afternoon. Um, yeah, thanks so much for joining, Dan. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm I'm so excited to talk uh, about impro and um, get your input on um, what is a, a very major, as as we were saying before the show, like really improv is more U.S. Um, North American, whereas uh, impro is the term for improvisation improvisation and improvised theater in UK and Europe and most of the rest of the world. Um, and somehow as much of an improv nerd as I am, um, it's been this big blind spot to me where I've found all these different ways to, I, I, like I've tried to like research it. And of course I've come across uh, Keith Johnstone's books, um, including the one called Impro. Um, but I just haven't been able to like really see it as much or talk to people who are in that world. It feels very much like a parallel universe. And if you've ever seen like the show Fringe, <laughs> Where like the <laughs> oh. like start to like bleed into each other, and I'm trying to like access like 
It's Who's the over there? <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> so um, uh, that's really going to be the topic of our conversation. And, and uh, <laughs> I'm probably going to ask like many trivial questions <laughs> that may, that like you get from audience members uh, during their first show um, about impro. Um, and then hopefully we'll, we'll land on a few enlightened ones uh, too. But um well, one one per, one person's trivia is another person's expertise, James. So I yes. think we'll, yeah. Um, uh, and let's start with um, Keith Johnstone improv, which is otherwise known as, as impro. The term impro is specific to. Um, well, you you tell me, is that something that that uh, Keith Johnstone coined, or is it something that existed before he latched onto it for the book title? Oh, that's you know what I've never been asked that question, so uh, that's you're already at, at PhD. One point, there you go. I don't, I don't think that he coined the term. I think uh, he may have, um, it, but his book, his first book, was called Impro, and uh, and most of the rest of the world refers to improv as impro, even though it's exactly the same in a lot of ways. Of course, you know. There are 90 million different dialects to improv and impro, and there's tons of different points of view. I think for Johnstone, uh, briefly, uh, Johnstone was a uh, teacher and was a teacher by trade to begin with. And I recommend reading his book, Impro, especially if you're a teacher. Um, and he worked at the Royal Court in the 60s. And the Royal Court was a very sort of avant garde for the time. Uh, theater company in London. And you have to remember at this point in time, improvisation was illegal. You oh, could really? not, you couldn't <laughs> improvise. You had every script that was produced had to be vetted by the yeah. government, uh, which is very sort of 1984. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I so, did not know that piece of the context. That's, that's remembering that's, your lines is hard enough. Having the government watch you, I'm, that's too much, man. <laughs> yeah. So, so Johnstone uh, did a number of things. He had it. He worked with a group of uh, a lot of the terrific playwrights that came out of the 60s in the UK, uh, Edward Bond. I mean, Johnstone knew Beckett. He knew Samuel Beckett. Um, he didn't teach Beckett, but he but he knew him. Um, and they began, you know, working with, um, you know, uh, sort of workshops about how do we how do we write better plays? How do we how do we do theater? And a lot of the exercises and and John Stone's passion came out of teaching th this amazing group of people back then. Um, cut to, he moved to the University of Calgary to become a professor and started doing this with his students, theater games, and that's how theater sports evolved. So impro is not so much a different type of improv, it's just without the V. Um, Strangely, when I was teaching uh, in the UK in the late 80s, 90s, um, most groups were doing theater sports or they were doing sort of open improv, which is also a Johnstone thing. Um, and then it cut to 15, 20 years later, a, a wave of people had gone to Chicago, learned about the Herald. And so now uh, the prevailing format in in the UK, uh, I'm generalizing is you know Harold and Chicago-based improv, but but the uh, and I was saying this to you before we got on the air the 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 chains of how people discovered improv are are very overlapping. For example, um, you know I grew up in San Francisco. We had the committee, and Del Close was in the committee way back when, and I think the Herald actually started in San Francisco. 
But my experience was through uh, Johnstone teaching folks in Seattle who taught folks, taught us in San Francisco, and then we came down to LA and it kind of spread from there all the way to Austin, the first theater sports group in Austin. So there's this completely different, uh, I keep doing the, the West Coast. <laughs> um, there's a completely different um, uh, heredity to, um, to improv on the West Coast for some people. Um, and uh, what Johnstone's core, um, I think core, for me, the core learning was uh, be obvious, take care of your partner, um, don't try and be funny. Um, the whole um, concept of the more obvious you are, the more original, uh, which uh, I learned from Johnstone way back when, really was a transformative thing rather than, because I always thought, because uh, I grew up as an actor and I always thought that, you know, you should do your best. But of course, doing your best means you kind of step away from the moment. You're, you're now thinking about doing something as opposed to doing something. So um, briefly, uh, when I was eight or nine, I got sent to the American Conservatory Theater to become an actor and started doing improv very early because, uh, you know, we were nine-year-olds. We couldn't memorize a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we, we, got taught, we got taught Commedia dell'arte. And then um, when I was in high school, as part of a theater company that used to do open plays by doing an improv set before we would do the play. Um, and... Uh, I went to a British, I went to a London drama school where we did contact improv, completely different physical improv. And when I got back to San Francisco, someone, I, I was, you know, unemployed actor trying to figure out what to do next. And someone dragged me to a theater sports workshop taught by Rebecca Stockley from Seattle. And um, the San Francisco actors that I was uh, working with, and I was 22, 23 at the time, everybody else were, you know, 10 years, at least 10 years older than me and professional actors and had been in San Francisco working. So they wanted to form a theater company. And so I got, I, I really was very lucky. I got to start doing professional improv and start teaching professional improv almost at the same time. So, because we, we decided to create a theater sports company in San Francisco, which is Bats Improv. And um, so I, I got, dipped in the holy waters of Johnstone. Um, and that's all we did. We taught from the impro book. We taught theater sports games. Um, and it wasn't until uh, he came down to see our shows that we realized just how much we were fucking it up. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. But well, because we were, you know, we were zealots. We were taking the book and going, you can never say no. You know, you, you have to yeah. accept every idea. And uh we did a show for at the zen center in san francisco because uh the buddhist uh the zen center in san francisco was very into johnstone um they thought that um improv was a very zen thing um so they would bring him down and we would kind of uh, um, grab him as well for for workshops for us but he came and saw a show and he said what are you guys doing um you don't have to say yes to everything. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. And it was um, kind of a, it was an epiphany in terms of being able to look at 
this stuff uh, not so much from a rule-based place, but just from a story place, from a listening place, from a paying attention place. So that's kind of the core. And then eventually I moved down here and uh, started LA Theater Sports, which then evolved into Impro Theater. Uh, cool. That, so Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess just again, to get some like context before we uh, get the story of uh, your theater, um, you mentioned specifically theater sports, and I know that there's also in impro um, show styles like Maestro. In, in what was the other one? That's uh, it's not day in the life. Life I game. Say. Life, life game. game. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those are uh, at least theater sports is like literally trademarked style of Keith Johnstone's, right? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Yeah, and it was just uh, it was trademarked in order to sort of protect the format because the further it gets away from Keith, the more crazy it gets. Mm -hmm. uh, people start bastardizing it, and um, um, and also the idea was just to create community globally because there are theater sports groups in Singapore and you know Trondheim, Norway. You know they, they're all over wow. the place. Yeah, um, so it's like somewhere between like Harold is a non-trademark, but it's something that that people um can sort of commonly talk about uh between that and like comedy sports which is like a franchise and a business somewhere between that is just the the idea of like a trademark style that has a little bit more curation to it but is still open enough for anyone you, you don't have to like do you have to like buy a license or like how do you how do you get approved no, anybody <laughs> anybody anybody can do theater sports um and the iti pro provide the iti is the international institute uh international theater sports institute okay and uh can you guys tell that i've had a lot of coffee uh, <laughs> and uh what the iti does is kind of manage theater sports and maestro they don't they don't really have anything to do with life game uh which is still run by uh johnstone but um but johnstone donated the uh formats to the iti in order to sort of provide information have a global hub where you could find out how to play maestro um there's books in many languages not as many as we would like about how to do theater sports how to do maestro and to help people do it to help put it in schools um um, and so it wasn't so much that we don't want, we don't want, uh, the wrong people doing it. It was, I think the original idea was we want everybody to do it and we want to help them to do it, uh, in a way that's, that's good. Um, mm -hmm. and there's tons of, you know, uh, the com original comedy sports group was a theater sports group originally in mm -hmm. Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and, there are very, there's lots of competitive improv on the planet, but um, Johnstone didn't really care about the competition. He went to, I can't remember who, he went to see professional wrestling in England in the 60s mm -hmm. and was with um, one of his mentors. I can't remember. Um, I think it's George Devine, but they uh, were watching it and tripping out about how into this fake sport the yeah. audience was <laughs> and and he started thinking about well what if what you know how do we get that energy into the theater um and you think about you know the theater in the 
fifties and sixties in the UK, sort of what that looked like and wanting to get energy, that type of energy in. So that was the sort of core moment, I think probably for him with regards to theater sports. So it wasn't so much about uh, trying to do a gimmick as it was, how do we find that kind of energy? And so um, what happens is though, and Keith will say this is the further it gets away from him, the more screwed up it gets. And, (laughs) and people try and make it good. And one of the things that John Stone talks about is when you come out on the stage, like he says, we're at war with light entertainment, which means that sometimes people take, try and do like a really great uh, host for the show. Who's a standup and it's very slick. And what Johnstone taught, um, was come in low status, come in like, hey, we're going to do the show. It's going to be great. Uh, but it, if you come in low status and without a lot of expectations, then when you do a scene that's good, the audience is very impressed. So um, don't, come in, don't come in so high. Like the worst yeah, don't thing oversell the world, it, yeah. Yeah, the worst thing in the world is to have somebody go, uh, and performing tonight, you know, is so-and-so and he's great or she's great because she did this, 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 this you know, you have this poor person comes in and there's all these expectations already, as opposed to, we have no idea what's going to happen and we're going to be shocked and amazed. Um, uh, yeah. so that, that was, you know, real theater sports is very much about, um, being mischievous, having fun, making your partner look good. Um, we used to do this thing at LA theater sports called the Stanislavski open years ago, where we'd have second city, uh, the groundlings, um, Latins anonymous, which was a group in the nineties, uh, cold tofu, which is an Asian American, uh, improv group, but we'd have them all come and play theater sports with us. Well, we lost every single match because we didn't care. And it was about, you know, coming into their scene or them coming into our scenes to make it, uh, more of a community event than it was a real competition. And it is games and what uh, people would associate probably more in the States, even though whose line is it anyway is also uh, uh, English, but um, whose line comedy sports, that's the the world of um, games that uh, also theater sports looks like, right? Yeah. And, and there's theaters, uh, William Hall up in San Francisco has a terrific book, just plugging for him. He has a thing called the playbook, which is, you know, 9 million games. Um, and yeah, theater sports um, is very game based, but it's, there's also open scenes. Um, and the more you do it, the more you try and make up new games or try and do stuff that's different. I know there's, I, there's a couple of improv groups. I've seen a couple in the UK and a couple here who do the same 15 games every show because that's their, their comfort level. But um, John Stone likes to say, if you get good at something, stop doing it. You know, to try and, like when the first year we did theater sports in LA, we ended every show with a musical. And we realized we were relying on that as no matter how bad the show is, we're gonna pull it out in the last 10 minutes and really had to consciously go, no, let's let's try and do stuff that's challenging because that's, that's what's interesting to the audience when they see you on the edge of failure or when they see you fail. And, and that was the other thing about Johnstone that was really, really amazing to me and to a lot of us, which was 
failure is good. And as long as you fail good naturedly, uh, the audience will love you. Uh, if, if you're one, when we first started, uh, guys, this is, this is very, this is a true story. When we first started doing, uh, theater sports in LA, we couldn't get casting directors to come to shows. Okay. Um, we were in Hollywood when it was really gnarly, but we had a parking lot right next door, uh, at theater theater, the great theater theater. And, um, it wasn't the, it wasn't the parking. It wasn't the meth clinic, not sorry, uh, methadone clinic next door. It wasn't uh, any number of things. It was, they didn't want to see people on stage in pain and they'd been to improv shows where <laughs> people were sucking and instead of like rolling with it, they, you could see them be miserable. Yeah. And I, more than once I had to talk to a casting director or an industry person and say, no, no, no. When, when we die, it's a celebration. It's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, one of my favorite nights was a group, a rookie group. There were four of them on the team. And they came out to do a dubbing game where everybody speaks for everybody else, yeah. but only the person introducing it knew the game. So it was a complete and utter mess. But <laughs> uh, uh, also there's a thing in theater sports, the horn for boring or the horn of plenty. As oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've seen yeah. plenty. Thanks very much. Um, <laughs> and when they when they eventually got horned, they, oh, no. they, they, they grabbed hands and took this, you know, Royal Shakespeare Company bow, and the audience loved them for the rest of the, their show um, because we're, you know, we're mammals. So if I'm watching you on stage suffer or you're watching me suffer, um, as as long as you're okay with it, then that somewhere deep down inside, I'm going, okay, he's okay with it. I'll be okay with it. But yeah. as soon as you yeah. start to panic, um, there's anxiety that builds up in me. So, uh, so that was that was a profound uh, thing for me to learn, which was. Just lean into the failure and really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And so speaking of those de devices that are specific to theater sports, um, uh, well, let's talk about uh, take us to co-founding theater sports in L.A. And like what what do those shows um, look like? Uh, one main question I have is about like, isn't there isn't there generally a role of a director? I, I think that would make sense as we would call it a host. Otherwise, uh um, for theater sports, is that is that something that's everywhere in Johnstone well, Improv? This, Impro? Yeah, this goes to uh, like I I played. I won't say which city in Germany, but I've I've played I've played where the the local group had a host and a referee and judges, <laughs> and so the host was a, usually a stand up who would riff and you know do their tight six minutes of stuff. Mm -hmm. Then the MC would also uh, interject during the show. The judges would have something to say. So by the time you got to the improvisers, you were 15 minutes into the show. Um, and uh, that that's not real theater sports. Real real theater sports, there's not really a director on stage. There's, an, there's a referee um, and uh, the referee doesn't do a tight five. They basically explain what theater sports is and then uh brings in the judges there are three judges who are scoring from zero to five and uh, the idea of the judges is basically be the parental units in the in the theater and the, and the improvisers are like a group of children who've just been let go for summer 
a vacation. And the judge's job was to score lower than what the scenes are worth so that the audience has a place to focus their anger and support the actors. Yes. So, so real, to answer your question, the real job of the MC was just to move the show along, but not to, in fact, in a, like in Canadian, a lot of Canadian theater sports, you don't see the, the MC slash referee most of the show. Um, it, they may be on a microphone, just judges scores, and then you see the judges throw up their scores, set, there's a scorekeeper, what have you. But it doesn't matter who wins, and, it, and the show is not about the host. The show is about giving the improvisers uh, the space to uh, have fun, misbehave. Um, the other thing that Johnstone did, which is really brave, is if the show sucked, they would, this was at the Loose Moose, which was his first theater up in Calgary, they would offer to the audience their money back. Hey, we felt like tonight, you know, we, we, we didn't hit it, so feel free to get your money back. And the audience was so uh, moved by that, that they would usually not take their money back, but come again, because they thought, this place is willing to give me my money back, They you know, it's and honest, they're self-aware enough to be like, hey, that no. wasn't the that wasn't the best. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you guys both know, improvisers are the worst judge of their work. They're oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Totally. You're not lying. Those conversations you have with yourself in the car are some of the most brutal ones you ever have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you you uh start up um theater sports LA and yeah, well, I started it up with Ellen Idelson and Forrest Brakeman, both of whom had been up in the Bay Area. And uh, Forrest had actually moved down here and had another group. And Ellen um, had gone to, you know, I think she'd gone to Harvard for, to go be part of the theater program there and just didn't dig it. And we came and brought down a couple of coaches from San Francisco, um, Rafe Chase and Barbara Scott. And we did a one weekend workshop. And all of a sudden, we had 25 people in the mix. Uh, uh, Jeff Murray and Nicolette Chaffee at um, um, Theater Theater decided to uh, agreed to give us a space on Monday nights. And within a month, we were doing packed houses uh, Monday nights in Hollywood, um, and people people couldn't get enough of it. It was it was uh, it was really fun. And that, that wave kind of went for about four or five years and we ended up transitioning a little bit, which I can talk about. But the, the initial thing was just reaching out to all of these, you know, um, wandering improvisers in LA who either didn't have a home or were unhappy where they were or whatever it was um, and giving them some place to be. And also we didn't demand fealty. We were like, hey, you can belong to as many groups as you wanna do study anywhere you want. Um, Keith is very anti-guru and we tried to embrace that. The idea that all improv is good. Uh, you know, if, if you enjoy it, then, then great, as long as you're not harming anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, the, the beginning of LA Theater Sports was really uh, just a terrific time uh, and with an amazing, and, and pretty within four years, the company was 88 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, yeah. it grew exponentially. And how long between the formation of Theater Sports LA to you opening up um, Impro Theater? 
Uh, Impro, we, we, the first show for LA Theater Sports was November 88. And somewhere around uh, sort of 99, we got our own theater in the Valley. And I went off to New York. I think I was telling you about this. I went off to New York to work with the Improbable Theater of London to do Keith's, Keith Johnson's Life Game. Myself and, and Brian Lohman went off to, for a year to go do Life Game. So an off-Broadway show that was all improvised, which was terrific. And when I came back from New York, there was a real, like, uh, we're, we don't want to run a theater. We don't want to, you know... Uh, take care of a building. So LA theater sports kind of just um, stopped uh, for a while. And there was a core group of us who still wanted to do this work. I had been really inspired by the improbable guys in London, um, or sorry, in New York from London, because they were doing all sorts of theater. They, they were a theater company. They weren't an improv troupe and not there's anything wrong with an improv troupe, but uh, the core group of LA theater sports folks were all trained actors and we did regional theater and we did television and film and, and we really wanted to do something more challenging. So we started doing uh, hour and a half, two hour improvised plays. We'd actually started doing that in theater sports. Like I think our first Shakespeare unscripted was 98 or something like that. Oh, we were doing this format called um, triple play where you get a playwright, a film director, and a musical style, and you do like a 10-minute first act of each, not connected. So you do uh, Tennessee Williams, Spielberg, Sondheim, and then you do the second act of each, take an intermission, and then you do the third act of each and finish each one out. And we were really cocky at the time, so we would just take suggestions from the audience. So we ended up doing weird stuff like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Jean-Luc Godard, and um, 60s folk, you know. So I, I'd be watching that. I'd be like, I, they're probably nailing it. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, well, that was the thing is you would turn like one night we got Sam Shepard and only one of the people on the bench knew who Sam Shepard was. And so You'd, you'd see the improviser trying to, you're leaning over the bench, trying to basically explain Sam Shepard in four lines uh, yeah. during the musical break. But um, so we, we eventually stopped doing that and started rehearsing those genres and programming them in. So, and that, that was kind of the first time we went, oh, if we rehearse these things a little bit more and actually assign homework and read Sam Shepard or read um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, that we would um, improvise in a place where we had some knowledge. We weren't doing parody. Uh, we tried to, that, that was the big thing to answer your question. That was the big difference between theater sports and impro mm -hmm. was that we really wanted to do improvised theater, you know, being inspired by Williams and Jane Austen and Chekhov and film noir but we didn't want to do parody because we had theater sports sometimes, you know, and, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this doing short form. Somebody says uh, Tennessee Williams and somebody works in that it's humid, that they're drinking bourbon and that somebody's name is sister woman or something like that. <laughs> sure. You know, 
It, it's just there's a little box you tick. Okay, I've done the style. Oh. As opposed to reading, really reading Williams, reading about Williams, and getting in your bones, so that if Williams were alive and sitting in the house, he would recognize that oh, this is something in in my world, um, yeah. and it can't help but be funny because it's improvised. But we, I remember the first time that we all the light bulb went off. We were really onto something. We. We were doing a show up in Ventura and there was a sort of ingenue boy who had a very overpowering father, kind of a big daddy character. And he killed the kid. He threw him through him, you know, space work out a second story window and the actor laid in the aisle. And there were a group of college kids from UCSB who were at the show and people were crying because <laughs> uh, we killed, we killed the ingenue. And, and that was that was kind of the thing is, you know, it's and Johnson has said this before as well. And, and many other theater teachers said this. It's fine to make the audience laugh. But what about scaring them? What about moving them? What about because the things that people talk about in the car on the way home or on the bus on the way home or whatever are the stories of, of what happened that night. So sometimes people remember the, you know, the one liners, but. But what really what's resonant, and this still happens, there are people who will come up to us and go, I saw the show where blank, 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 you know, they, they remember the narrative. They remember what happened in the show. Um, and sometimes, and also they remember what, what went wrong in the show. Um, but sure. it's, it's memorable and, it, and it, uh, it's sticky. It stays with them. Yeah, so that's that's an essential element for what a, a defining element of improv for you in in particularly your theater is like taking these genres and um, yeah, I, I agree. Improv is naturally funny. That's like its natural course is to seem funny, um, but not not making any effort to keep it funny if it's naturally wanting to be more tragic, dramatic heartfelt yes and um uh because that uh to be able to move move people i think is important however one of the mandates early on and we had a discussion was we're not going to be uh self-indulgent or to put it in the british vernacular we're not going to be wanky you know we're not we're not going to go to an emotional moment just to elicit a response if the story dictates that this is going to happen, great. But if if you got caught showing off your acting chops, you know, that was a very bad thing. And uh, because we we really, you know, it's hard enough to do improv, but to do unscripted theater is a is another whole animal. And um, and if you're gonna if you're gonna move somebody, if you're going to attempt to have a, a story that has pathos um then you got to be honest that's one thing that you know i was part of a bar prov group at the laugh factory for nine years and it was you know it was improv for drunk people mm -hmm. and so we we really wanted to be in a place where um we could be truthful we could be vulnerable um because so much improv and, and and not not being disparaging there's a there's a lot of improv that's kind of glib you know, where people are not really risking anything. They're just commenting on what's going on. They're not really playing a character. I and mean, that's kind of one of the big improv questions. You have, you have people who 
who are coming at improv who've never taken an acting class. And then you have actors who are coming at improv who've never taken an improv class. And what, what we were trying to do in the beginning of improv theater, because we have, we have a school, we still have a school, was to take care of both those constituency, constituencies and to get them to understand the truth and vulnerability are really funny sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and that being truthful is sometimes the best thing you can be as opposed to observing, like I said in the beginning, trying to think of a funny line is uh, already takes you out of the moment because now you're in your head thinking about what, what's funny to say. And what we were trying to say is it's in there. You don't have to try and find it. It will find you. Um, and uh, my wife, uh, Edie, who's a terrific improviser, talks about that basically we're vessels channeling something. You know, mm -hmm. that if, if I'm paying attention to you guys in the scene, I'm listening to you, I don't have to worry about what comes next because it's going to be there. Um, and trust that, and trust is really important in this, in this equation and one of the core ethics of, of what we were trying to do at Impro. I'm going to trust that if I say something that's completely ridiculous, you guys are going to make me look good for having said it, and it's going to be incorporated into the narrative, and we're going to move forward. Um, in the I beginning, when I was directing, you know, these two-hour shows or other people were directing, it was very hard in the show not to be thinking about, well, if he does this, then that happens here. And, and mm -hmm. I just had to let it go. Um, there was a, there were a couple of efforts to sort of figure out format wise, you know, well, if A does something to B, what happens to C? And, and it just didn't work for us. What worked was we're all good enough at telling story. If we trust each other enough, it will happen. There will be a two hour narrative. Um, and at the intermission, just to give you an idea of what an impro theater show is. So uh, Paul Rogan came over from the UK and, and, and we decided to do Jane Austen. He was he and he and I directed it. And we know that we have to establish a hero girl who's going to fall in love. At some point, we have to meet the suitors. Um, and eventually we're going to have a happy ending. Uh, that's the way John, uh, Jane Austen works. But what we wanted to make sure of is that nobody planned or nobody maneuvered or tried to manage each other and that it happened organically. So at the intermission, at the interval, um, we, we stand in a circle, and this goes for all of the impro shows that are two acts. Um, we stand in a circle, everybody says who their character is, maybe what they've established, you know, I'm from Hertfordshire, whatever it is. Uh, I'm in love with her. Um, and, and that's it. Uh, we just talk is, are there, we only talk about what has happened, not what might happen. Um, as the directors, we might say, we've seen too many scenes with guys. This is a female genre. There should be no scenes with two guys talking, you know, let, <laughs> let's stop, stop doing that. Um, which was a great education way back when to sort of, really make sure that that the driving force was a, was about the ladies um so that that was the the extent of our formatting was that 
we just talked about what had happened at the inter intermission, but we had no idea who was going to be that A girl or whether there were going to be a pair of sisters who both had love stories, whether there was an A, a story, a B story, a C story. We had no, no idea of any of that. It just happened because we rehearsed enough and we read enough. Um, that's the other thing about improv theater directors is that their job is to read all as much stuff as they can and then develop improv exercises for rehearsal so that you can practice um, uh, in uh, one of the exercises that Paul invented for Jane Austen was the your infuriating moment. And the your infuriating moment was, uh, oh, bonding over shared values was the first one. So um, a couple meeting and bonding over shared values. You like fashion, I like fashion, you know, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, them having some sort of conflict. So we've designed stuff for noir, for Chekhov, for all the different genres we do with the, with the idea of how do you get the genre and the literary style embedded in the improviser so that the improviser doesn't have to think about, um, uh, you know, what, what people wore at the time, what people ate at the time, uh, um, that sort of thing. Because our initial problems were always with somebody talking about a telephone and, and check off or something like that. Um, <laughs> you know yeah well I, I you know as you're just saying this i'm realizing that like yeah it makes sense that like if you're gonna the difference between parody and homage uh and, and doing the the genre while being able to like allow it to be comedy or silly or whatever it is um is being intimately familiar with it um right. And that to me also applies to like like everything in improv right is is that like the the way if people are like how do i make sure that I, if I'm doing like characters and accents and stuff, like how do I make sure that I'm not uh, just doing a cliche or stereotype? And it's like, well, you got to go live life enough to meet people from the South and meet Canadians and not just say a boot and a, you know, like, yeah. if you're um, doing Shakespeare, don't be the guy who bites his thumb the entire time. We, we, we get it. That's a, yeah. 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 Having, having a, a deeper knowledge of it, that, that just gives you a more authentic influence to, be influenced uh, yeah. and, not, and not have to manufacture so much. And, and we, you know, we started doing things right off the bat where we had a, you know, we had a, we had a costume designer. We had, uh, when we could afford it, we'd have a musician. Uh, uh, we'd have set designs. Um, so, you know, when we're doing Jane Austen, um, we have Regency clothes on, we have a Regency set. It's built for improvisers so that it can be many different things. Um, one of the sets we have had this big center poof with all these quarter pieces on it, which when we did Shakespeare at one point, it broke out and became a cave. Um, uh, so the, the idea was to do everything that you would see going to a play without a script. Um, and to really, um, in fact, I think my, my favorite nights are when the audience forgets that it's improv. And then something happens, like we did, we did Jane Austen in Santa Monica at the Broad stage, which is a lovely theater. And some woman had brought her support dog. I don't think it was a support dog. I think it was just her dog. And the dog, in, during the show, because we were on the deck, it's a black box theater, the dog came backstage. 
Okay. So uh, my wife Edie, playing uh, one of the sisters in the show, picked up the real dog and walked out on stage, um, and you know did a scene with the dog. Um, we we were in uh, the Pasadena Playhouse and uh, doing a Shakespeare show, and there was an earthquake, wow. and the whole lighting rig was was swaying back and forth and we have a set and we have everybody's in costume and the audience is thinking about bolting for the exit and the two people on stage in uh, used the earthquake in the show you know melinda you do make the ground beneath my feet royal and quake i love <laughs> it you know so so the 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 idea was to have high production values like we did a noir at an amphitheater the John uh, John Anson Ford, which is huge amphitheater. We had 800 people. I think that's our, our record for an improv show. We had 800 people see us do an improvised L.A. noir with a five-piece jazz band live scoring. And um, so that, that was the type of place, that was the type of thing that we've always been trying to do, which is how can we make this, you know, richer? How can we take improv to the next level with regards to um once again, nothing wrong with short form, nothing wrong with bar prov, but how can how can we, um, uh, you know, bring the theater audience into it? Because improv for so long, as you guys know, it has been a pejorative. You know, oh, you're doing an improv show. You know, especially when we first started out, it was like, no, no, it's actually a, it's a really good show. You should come see it. So trying to move it up in the and bring in this other constituency of people who may be biased. Um, ironically, the most judgmental people when we first started out were other people in the theater community mm -hmm. um, and critics. Like it took us forever to go, hey, it's not your job to define theater. Uh, it's your job to observe theater. And we say this is theater. So come and see the show. Um, and, you know, we had that thing of people going, well, they must have had set bits and things like that. We go, come back the next night. We actually got a critic to come back the next night. So he wrote two reviews. Both were positive. But in the first one, he had said, obviously, they have set bits that are really funny. And so when he came back the next night and saw almost a completely different cast doing a completely different show, uh, he wrote another review anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But so and to me. Uh, that seems again, I having, um, we we've talked about up to this point where we're talking about the specifics of like your shows at your theater. Um, uh, we've covered like everything that I can really glean from the internet and coming across books, but also knowing that like, well, if somebody picked up, uh, you know, truth and comedy, um, and improvise, and it's like, these are kind of these source, um, literature for modern us uh improv like that would be a good start but like then they're like so are you doing herald or are you doing you know um it, it would be a difficult question to uh, to like answer how things are different now and still influenced by like where things started and so i'm just trying to figure out like for myself and uh, the audience like some useful things to kind of point to uh not not just to put different styles of improv in a box, but to get people thinking differently about how you can lean into different aspects of improv uh, in different ways. Uh, and one of the things that I am picking up on is this theatricality of improv, um, because in my experience talking with people from uh, UK and Canada, where it seems there's a little bit more improv influence than there is in the States, um, 
that seems to be a, a defining factor across the board. I'm sure it, it, to me, it seems a little bit like like impro lean, in general leans a little bit more theatrical, uh, theatrical uh, and dramatic, and U.S. leans in general more toward making it comedy. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. And, Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, the 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 last uh, thing is. Oh no, I forgot. He's taking notes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say that there's a lot of, um, I, I mean, for a long time in Europe, uh, all improv was just called theater sports. It was like Kleenex or, mm-hmm. um, you know, any other, it was just every, anytime you did the improv, it was theater sports because, um, that wave, the first wave of uh, improv in in Germany, in Holland, uh, and I think in in the UK was was theater sports and Johnstone. Um, and but I, I but so right now you could go to a, an improv show that would be you know Harold Riffick. You know, there's no there's no there's no borders there. Um, uh, with regards to that, there there is a tradition um, in some of the older theaters that have been around that their impro is, like you said, a little more theatrical and a little bit more um, grounded in narrative. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, like there's a whole wave in France in the last decade of slow improv, mm-hmm. um, which... Uh, speaks to theatricality with regards to taking your time and not do hurry up faster, funnier type stuff. Um, I, I think it's important to, to say that once again, that, that improv, wherever it is, um, is terrific, uh, whatever, however you're approaching it. And to your thing about, you know, if somebody read truth and comedy or, or whatever, uh, or Mick Napier's book, which the title, uh, escapes me Uh, yeah so there's all these terrific books and and my personal advice and my personal preference is read all of them and if you're an improviser who hasn't taken an acting class go take an acting class Mm -hmm. and go take a movement class which is just something that most people don't think of doing but so much so much improv and i would say and we've all seen mediocre shows is, you know, two people on stage trading witty comment, witty comment, sharp retort. You know, it's it's just back and forth standing in this Beckett-esque wasteland without any sort of um, wear or environment or anything. Um, And uh, people don't move. And yet some of the best offers that I've received on stage are from how somebody is moving in the space and what their body is telling me. Yeah. Um, so uh, it depends on also what your reasons for doing improv are. Some people just want to, you know, go down on Saturday night and riff and, you know, drink beers afterwards and um, and try and date somebody. You know, there's, there's some very <laughs> primal reasons for doing improv. And our student body, uh, I would say probably more than 60 percent of them have no interest in being on whose line is in any way or, or audition for SNL. They're, they're contractors and plumbers and lawyers and um, 
and nonprofit admin people. They're, they're people who want to, instead of going to book club, they want to go and make up stories and laugh once a week or twice a week. So, but if you want to be a performer, um, having, you know, the more, uh, the more we you lost, can, we lost Bob, but we'll keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, the more, the more, uh, experiences you can have, uh, with regards to everything from acting to movement, to improv, to, you know, reading Chekhov, um, I think it's yeah. going to make you a better improviser. Absolutely. I agree. Especially on the physical, physical theater front. I mean, it's, it's hard to weigh is acting more important than physical theater and where do you draw the line and all this, but, um, physical theater, uh, I love personally. And, um, Again, maybe maybe it's just I, I consider it a little bit more like precious because I, I come across it more rarely. Like I, I know where to find acting classes a little bit more easily than, than where to find physical theater classes. And I, I, I would love to talk to you about contact improv, too, because that's I, I, I believe I know what that is, where you are leaning against. It's like dance, improvised dance and wrestling sort of uh, leaning against each other and, and rolling and finding uh, movement while always being in contact with a partner. Is that right? Uh, not necessarily. In fact, my drama school teacher um, uh, knew nothing of what I would say improv or impro is. She she taught us this weird thing that was just about moving in space. So I haven't taken I haven't taken a contact improv class, but I think that's what she was trying to teach us. Gotcha. And one of the things she would do: no physical contact. So. Uh, <laughs> We would be dancing around. I remember she cranked some Ricky Lee Jones with a severe bass line and we'd run around, you know, the dance studio and not touch each other. And uh, at the time, I thought it was ridiculous because I had learned improv in high school and, and as a kid. Um, but I do think like viewpoints, uh, Suzuki, th there's there's uh, there's there is there are physical theater um um, trainings um, that can help inform you. Like what it, at Impro, our first core level, which is kind of after your beginning class, is called physical core. Okay. And the idea is to get people to understand that their body is just as important as what they say. Yeah. And and also, we're not trying to break it up into, you know, this is your soup course, this is your entree. It's, it's all one thing, and the more we can think of it as one thing, um, uh, the, the more holistic you are as an improviser, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we're, we're coming toward the end of our time. Uh, I, I, I did, I, so I, real briefly, I just I remembered my last little point on um, what, what I was hearing from you on the theatricality and everything for improv, which is that, like, I... I hear, this is my experience is that I hear a lot in teachings, uh, in improv, um, and at, at, at big theaters like IO or UCB that are like, um, you know, it doesn't have to be funny. UCB is a little bit more on the comedy side, but like IO in particular is, is, is like, let it be heartfelt. Let it be tragic. Leave room for just that, that truth that isn't necessarily funny. Um, and I, I think that that exists a lot in the teachings, but I don't see it a lot in the shows, like uh, at least not as often as you would think by how frequently you come across it in the, uh, in the teachings and whatnot. Um, and so uh, to me, that, that, that is just an interesting um, little tilting point 
again, I don't think anything's exclusive from improv and nothing's exclusive from impro, but um, it's an interesting tilting point. And I wonder um, if you have any thoughts on like, if you, if, you know, you agree with that. And um, if it comes from like impro being uh, London, UK based and um, that being a place where theater is a little bit more um, respected might not be the exact term I'm looking for, but like, it seems like theater has a, a different um, connotation to it as a profession in uh, London, as far as I understand than it does in most places of the U S. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing is, I, I remember leaving drama school in London and one of my flatmates was saying, well, what are you going to do when you get back? And I said, I'm probably going to get a bartending job. You know, I probably am going to wait tables, uh, uh, you know. Um, and he was aghast because in, you know, being an actor was a noble, is, is a noble profession. And he was just going to collect unemployment until he, he booked booked a job. Um uh, so, so the, just the, the point of view, I think you're right, um, and at least in my experience, was that being an actor was much more, welcome back, uh, uh, being an actor was, 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 a, was a noble profession. And, um, and, you know, in L.A., you throw a rock and you, you'll hit an actor. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, um, or a screenwriter or both. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I, I think, I think that, I don't know, I, I think of being an improviser as, um, being, um, a good actor, a good writer, a good director. I, I think of being an improviser actually as being a good human, which is one of the reasons why I wrote two books, two books with Jeff Katzman about improv as a applied improv for your life thing was, I think what we get to do on stage, uh, if we're following all of the, you know, the uh, traditional guidelines of improv, make your partner look good, serve the story, um, uh, fail good naturedly, you know, mistakes are gifts, all of these, yes. And all of these uh, pithy improv sayings, if you really apply them to the other areas of your life, it makes you a good human being. So I know that's a long stretch from your original question, but I think that I, for me and for a lot of people who've been through Impro, um, uh, it's about realizing that this is all a practice. You're never going to be perfect at it. And it's not about being famous. It's about having good time, sharing joy and creating good stories. Um, I don't know if I answered your question, James. You did. Um, okay. and, but, and then I think you wrapped it up nicely by saying that uh, ultimately that's uh, what you just described is what uh, impro and improv have in common. And, um, you know, not to overthink the differences so much, uh, but uh, to embrace what really is, um, you know, at the heart of both of them and all of it, all of uh, improv, improvised theater. Yeah. Really quick, Dan, can, we, can we plug your book, the, uh, the one for the Improv for Life book? Yeah, uh, Life Unscripted, Using Improv Principles to Get Unstuck, Boost Confidence, and Transform Your Life. That's the one that Jeff and I, Jeff Katzman, who's a psychiatrist, um, he, he works at a teaching hospital, um, and he was a student of mine way back when. Uh, and we, we uh, so that was our first book, basically um, about not paying attention to the 
to the scripts that other people give you, but to actually live your your authentic life, uh, be, uh, I guess, write your own script. Um, oh, Bob, you had mentioned the, the, that, that voice in the car on the way home after a yes. bad show. <laughs> and, and we talk about that. We talk about your buddy, you know, the person who's on stage going, wow, that was a dumbass choice, choice to make or whatever it is. Yeah. And to really make friends with your buddy and not to let uh, him or her um, uh, bring you down, but actually to, oh. to uh, make it more of a cheerleader than anything else. I, and the second book, which came out in June of this year, is Ensemble, Using the Power of Improv and Play to Forge Connections in a Lonely World. We started writing that a month before COVID. And uh, so because we had been inspired by the fact that in the UK, Theresa May, the prime minister, had created a minister for loneliness because loneliness is actually an epidemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so we started we started writing. And then, of course, the book changed a great deal during COVID because we were we were dealing not only with the with loneliness, uh, but also uh, just how we connect to each other, what our ensembles are, our family ensemble, our friend ensemble, our work ensemble, um, and how ensembles help us to engage with the world. And also when ensembles are not necessarily a, a good thing. Um, and we, we definitely were, um, uh, we definitely had to take a look at things after the murder of George Floyd with regards to how how that connection between the police and communities and the fact that um, there were, there is proof uh, and there are theater companies who've done work using improv to get police and members of the community to actually engage with each other, play improv games, break bread, share things. So we, we, we started seeing applications for improvisations everywhere and in, in all aspects of life. Um, and that's what the two books are about is how do, so it's not about being a performing improviser. It's just about being a good human being and being happy. Uh, so. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. Um, thanks so much, Dan, for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for letting us into, uh, the parallel universe to me of, um, <laughs> improv. Um, yeah. Is, is there anything else uh, you want to plug? I hope people come check out the theater, um, Impro Theater, and, and see some of those shows. Are you up and running right now? Yeah, we're doing well. We're doing virtual shows. Um, we're doing horror unscripted currently, uh, documentary unscripted. They're all virtual on YouTube. ImproTheater.com and theater is R E. So I M P R O T H E A T R E.com. And uh, so I would say check out uh, improtheater.com for, for everything. Um, the books are published by North Atlantic Books and available through Penguin Random House. Uh, if you Google Life Unscripted um, and Ensemble, exclamation point. Yeah, we'll um, leave links to all this stuff in the, in the yeah. comments in the description. And, and the last thing I, I would say is there's no difference. There's, there really is at the end of the day, there's no difference. It's, it's how we... It's how we were taught, how we grow up. But at the end of the day, we're all getting inspiration from various aspects of, of, of different improv teachers. And I will also say it's important to take class from different places so that, you know, because improv is not a, it's not one thing. It actually is, 
is everything. And I feel like if you get too uh, myopic, that it um, doesn't help your improv. Um, and um, I know uh, one of the core tenets of improv theater was that the ensemble would always be taking class, that there would never be a point where you would suddenly become pure energy and, <laughs> and not need to take we class. We transcended. Yes. <laughs> So, so I, my, my two cents to people who are improvisers out there, whether they've been doing it for two minutes or 20 years is, is to keep taking class from, from different sources or, and keep practicing. Cause just like mindfulness, improvisation is a practice. Yes. And the difference between impro and improv is the V. Yes. Uh, yes. yes. <laughs> you should have started with that. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a five minutes right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks again, Dan. We really appreciate it. We'll make sure yes. and we uh, leave links to all of um, your uh, content in the description and in the uh, comments for people to enjoy. Um, and to our audience, thanks for joining. Um, uh, make sure to go to the improvnetwork.org to check out the archive of all these episodes and uh, reminder that we are a podcast as well as a live stream video show. Um, so you can check us out wherever you can find podcasts. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye.